James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dion Doctor. This episode was recorded on the 29th of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Enjoy! Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. So how's it going? Uh, yeah, uh, good. Uh, just had Christmas and stuff, free from work. So just just enjoying that. Yeah, definitely. Same here. I've slowly been resting and recovering and sleeping a lot and telling myself that I'll do a bunch of things and going, no, it's vacation. I'll just <laughs> I'll just sleep a little bit. So I'm getting like one thing done today or having a couple of these conversations a day. So I definitely uh, understand the need to recharge. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, what kind of stuff are you working on right now? I know you recently released your uh, like I squared C and SPI register style driver tool. Um, yes. Yeah. Actually, I'm I'm interested in hearing a bunch about that because that's one of those things that I definitely will will be using for a couple things coming up. So I'd love to hear how that kind of went from the original conversation at the Oxidize conference that you gave. And I know that was for more of an internal like company project. And then you ended up rewriting some of the tooling so it could be open source. Yeah. So um, for work, uh, we were in a pretty experimental phase of, of my, my project. So I tried out a, a bunch of different uh, things, a bunch of different chips. And well, they need drivers. So, so I got some uh, experience in writing Rust drivers for them. And I started out uh, doing that in the way that I did in C and C++. But yeah, it's, it's not amazing. Um, but then I found out, hey, there, there is this other way, a little bit like uh, the, the packs are, that you can also write them using macros and stuff. So then uh, the, the next driver I wrote was for some PLL. And I tried it out a little bit. And well, it, it, it's it's for work, so I can't spend too much time on it. But but I got something working and was was pretty happy with it. But it could be improved. So uh, after that, there was another chip that needed a driver, and I iterated on it again. And then I had it pretty uh, working pretty well. So then I did the uh, oxidize talk uh, about it. And I also showed off uh, what I made for that last chip. And now I've, well, not refactored it. I, and basically, I wrote it again um, <laughs> from scratch to be like fully generic because it needs to support many register sizes, write-only, read-only, uh, conversion between data types. And uh, I, I got uh, an issue or rather feature request from uh, James Wapples. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think he wrote the embedded graphics. Yeah, yeah. Thing? Yeah. Uh, he was writing a driver with it, and he needed uh, the little endian format for integers. Mm. So there's now a PR that, that does it, and I, I hope he can test it out, and I'll, I'll merge that in. So now you can even select uh, least significant bits, most significant bits, little endian, big endian. So yeah, I, I want it to be as generic as possible so as many people can use it the quick summary is is that it's a procedural macro i believe that allows you to specify sort of a a a register style layout so you would say like this is you know register 12 register 15 register 17 you can specify what bits are available in each of those fields very similar to the peripheral access crates yeah yeah 
Very cool. And then that does work with SPI and I squared C and different protocols as well, or? Well, you, you're you're fully free to to make the like hardware layer yourself. So, uh, so it uh, has like an abstraction layer where it says like someone's yeah. requesting this field and these bits from that field. No, no, just uh, I want uh, you. You need to implement a trait on your SPI struct or something, or rather your hardware interface, and then uh, it will say, "Read this register and give me back the results." Uh, it's it's this big. That's oh, that's, really that's cool. it, really, because uh, multiple devices have multiple kinds of registers and how you read them. Sometimes you need an extra pin to go high or low or whatever. So I don't think you can abstract that that much. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a trait you need to, to implement. Yeah. That's that's super cool. And that actually might even be more applicable because I think one of the things that I want to do with an acro at some point is have some sort of like shared table of data. And I think that might be an interesting way to just abstract over all of that. But yeah, I think definitely for a couple I squared C and SPI devices that I'm working on soon, I'll definitely have a chance to try that out because I I know I'm going to need to write some drivers soon. So I'm super glad you were able to uh, open source that and get that all published. Yeah, well, the, the funny thing is, yesterday or the day before, I I saw in the in the Matrix chat, someone talked about a driver for a Ethernet switch chip. Mm. And I, I looked uh, through it, just, just scanning through it, and he actually made a very similar macro. Uh, does things a little bit different, but it's it's really similar. So that, that proved to me that there is a use for it, like like people want it because you, you know, he has, has written it himself. So <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of those things that I've seen a couple times in embedded, and I don't know the best way to avoid that of people reinventing the wheel. Because I mean, there's definitely, I think, a lot of tooling out there. And I, I'm sure your crate is on the awesome embedded Rust list. And I'm sure we talk about it in the chat room. But I don't know how to be more loud about, hey, this exists. Like, remember, this is, exists. Definitely use these tools. Because I've seen that with like BBQ and some of the other crates that I've built where where someone like three months later will be like, oh, I built that. And I'm like, you're like 70% of the way to what I built with BBQ. Do you want to try just using BBQ? Like yeah. uh, those, but I guess that's always a software problem. Yeah. I don't actually think it's on the awesome embedded list yet. So that's something yeah. I, I should do. <laughs> yeah. For folks yeah. who aren't aware, the awesome embedded Rust list is basically just a big markdown page of people can say like, hey, I have this crate that's a driver for this system or does this capability or is this data structure or is this no standard crate? So uh, it's definitely one of the first places I look when I go, okay, is there a thing? Because it tends to be a little bit more searchable than Crates.io because not everyone uses tags consistently on Crates.io. So sometimes it can be yeah. a challenge to search for things. So sometimes yeah, it's you, nice to just have a global list of all of the embedded relevant stuff that people have built and found and things like that. Yeah, you can just control F and then search yeah. for the chip. And then if it isn't there, well, it may be still be there somewhere, but uh, probably probably not. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Huh. So what other stuff are you working on right now? Or what other stuff are you excited about working on? Because I know it's vacation, but I don't know <laughs> if you have any plans for interesting projects over vacation or stuff you're excited to get back to once vacation is over. Well, after vacation, it's just work again. Um, yeah. Right now, today, in the last couple of days, I was working on a little uh, LCD screen or rather a TFT screen. Uh, I've done that in, in the in the past, but just over uh, an SPI connection. But I've got a nice board 
which has like an Intel 8080 compatible interface. So I just want to stream boatloads of data to it, but uh, the, the chip it uses doesn't have a driver yet in Rust. So I want to uh, to make that as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's vacation, so I'm taking it uh, slowly. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. What yeah. uh what microcontroller are you using for that one? Are you using the NRF52 or? No, that one is a uh, an STM thirty two F four. Okay, but one of the one of the bigger ones. Hmm. So it's not the F eleven or four eleven or anything, is it? No, the four oh seven VET six. That's like okay. has like uh, one megabyte of flash, one hundred sixty eight megahertz, something something like that. Yeah, I Just think I have a four oh five, four oh one, and four. 11 boards for actually i don't think i have a 401 because i think i only bought the black pill boards that are the 411 but i have the adafruit 405 which i think is the same family as the 407 but i think the 405 has even more stuff on it does that one have an ethernet controller and stuff on it too Ooh, i don't know the, the board hasn't um, okay <laughs> yeah the funny thing is uh, this this board uh, i've got it here but it's all my don't unplug anything for me <laughs> this is it uh, okay it's like uh, a, a China board. Oh, is it one of those like core 407 boards or something like that? Yeah, it's the STM32F4VE. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a, uh, an OPL. Oh, very cool. On it. So for those who don't know, the OPL is the Yamaha chip. It's a sound synthesis chip, correct? Yes, yeah. And I've written a driver for it, although I haven't really published it yet already. Maybe I should. But yeah, you know, I, I can make sounds with this if I have mm -hmm. the speakers somewhere. And now I've I've hooked up the display. And uh, yeah, that's what I've been working on. That's super cool. What are you planning on? So if it has sound synthesis and it has a screen, what are you planning on building with it? I, I don't really know yet. <laughs> <laughs> the coolest Eurorack yeah. uh, module. Yeah. <laughs> no, a, a fun idea would be that uh, it, it also has USB. Hmm. So if I could make it uh, MIDI compatible, like make it a full-on MIDI device, then you can hear the sound, maybe display all, all the MIDI input on the screen. Mm -hmm. could, be, uh, could be a fun uh, fun project. Yeah, definitely. I know there's been a couple people in Rust working with MIDI. I know Per actually has been doing some Bluetooth MIDI stuff for, I think, real uh, for Arctic. Okay. I know I think he added a PR to Jonas's Rubble to support MIDI Bluetooth so that he could do for some of his classes like MIDI Bluetooth devices. But it'd be super cool to have a, a USB MIDI output. I know I've seen White Quark working with those OPL chips, but I know there's a ton yeah. of projects out there that are using those for like either retro sound cards or yeah, like Eurorack synths and, and things like that. So yeah, yeah. Uh, when I asked uh, around, for the uh, for some information about the OPL uh, because it's quite badly documented actually like yeah. everything you find online is is based on the same documentation that was made in the in the 90s at the end of the 90s by one person and all the registers aren't really described very well uh, um, so you, you sometimes you need to just to guess what things do I think I pointed you towards White Quark's uh, Glasgow notebook for that because White Quark, she does a really good job of like documenting stuff as she adds support for it for the Glasgow protocol. So yeah. I, like I've gone and used White Quark, like sometimes White Quark's data sheets are better than the original data sheets for a lot of those, those <laughs> chips. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, yeah the funny thing about uh, white cork is uh, at, at some point during my work project, everything that had to do with IP, so the TCP IP stack on the microcontrollers, but also just parsing IP addresses on the in JavaScript on, on a website was, was all white cork stuff. <laughs> Just, yeah, because yeah. she wrote small TCP. Uh, I did. I wasn't familiar with the JavaScript one, but she's written a ton of stuff, and it's it's always really. Whenever I see something that White Quark has written, and I get to use it, I'm always a little excited because I know it's going to work pretty well, and it's going to be well documented and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's fun running into stuff, but usually once you start getting too many things that White Quark has written, you know that you're in kind of a dangerous place because she tends to work <laughs> with a lot of cursed components and chips and protocols and things like that. So if you're in the same neighborhood as White Quark, you're either going to have a really good time or a really bad time. Yeah, yeah. I, I follow her on uh, on Twitter, which I recommend <laughs> to, to anyone. But, but yeah, you can see some really cursed uh, stuff. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, I was I was asking which chip you're using because at some point over the next days, I have a feeling I'm going to write a basic bootloader. I don't know if you saw this in Matrix yesterday, but I'm probably going to write some kind of basic bootloader for the like STM32F4 and the NRF52. If I can try and find something that will abstract over those, something like I need something because I have a couple wireless devices distributed around my house, and I don't really want to walk around and plug in programming headers into them and and program them just to do a firmware update. So I'm probably going to write a really terrible bootloader that works well <laughs> enough, and if it occasionally gets corrupted or something like that, and I have to go program it, okay. But I, I'm just writing something basic enough that will work for for what I'm doing. So I was wondering yeah. if you were ending up using a chip that I could, you know, lasso you into being a uh, <laughs> uh, a bootloader test driver and maybe with the STMF4. Yeah, I've, I've got some other things as well uh, that I have to look in a drawer for which ones exactly. I believe I have some ST STML4 or something. Mm. But, uh, I've used yeah. some of those for work, but I've never used those for hobby projects. So some of our customers for Ferris have been using the STM32L4, but I don't think I've ever used it in one of my own projects. Yeah, they're, they're more geared to, to uh, IoT because they can mm. be very, very efficient Yeah, without, without being Cortex-M0 processors because those are annoying. <laughs> yeah, I've I've ranted about those on Twitter. They're actually really good chips, and I, I'd much rather have an M0 than like an 8051 or something like that. Like if that's the choice, I would definitely choose the M0. But as a library writer in Rust, a lot of the times I like using atomic variables and some stuff that there's just no capabilities on the M0 for. So I end up having to like use critical sections and work around and that's like BBQ has a whole special support section just for Cortex M0 processors because they're so common. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've I've also wondered uh, how that will be in the Risk Five community area, because many of those extensions are selectable. So, oh, you want to have floating points? Well, here you can choose it. Uh, you can also on Cortex M. But oh, you want atomics? Oh, you can choose that. You want? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know them all by heart, but. Uh, and then I don't think they have any like one standard interrupt controller either. Like I think there's like two or three interrupt controllers that are basically used for everything. I, I'm also fairly new at Risk Five, but I think that's also going to be a particularly interesting because one of the the nicest things about the Cortex M family is that they have unified interrupt behaviors and that they all act exactly the same, more or less, on how they handle and dispatch interrupts, which means it's 
really easy to write a lot of libraries, especially ones that worry about concurrency safety or dispatching of interrupts and things like that. But I'm yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I know a lot of the micro or the common risk cores are like iMac or whatever, you know, so they have yeah. that. Um, yeah, yeah the a atomic extension but definitely as people start doing cost optimizations and things like that i i imagine there will be or more soft cores and things like that there will definitely be some that just don't have that a extension for atomics yeah yeah i believe uh, iMac is uh, the i is mandatory that's uh, the integer extensions yeah. the n are uh, integer multiply and division i believe a is atomic and c is I don't know, but, but but I believe it has to do with also with with synchronization or something, hmm. uh, mutexes or whatever. But uh, yeah, um, we'll 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 see. Uh, there there's that new uh, chip, the BL six o two. Yeah, I I I want to do a project with with Wi-Fi, and so I've I've got my eyes on that. But I first need to have the the, the time to delve into that. Yeah, I think I requested a board, but I requested, I think, to the Ferris office, which means now that I'm on vacation, I won't get it for some amount of time. But to be honest, it seems like the community is making progress. I think especially um, there, there's two or three people who are hanging out in the Rust embedded room who are making pretty active project or uh, progress on that. So sometimes I'm just OK watching other people make progress. And if I end up, you know. I come around and they have working Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. I'd be very excited about that. So I keep like retweeting whenever they share that and keeping the hype going. But I, I think I'm probably just going to work on other stuff. <laughs> like, I don't think I need to be in every uh, every project, but I'm super excited to see that because uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth have been, despite loving the Nordic chips, uh, like not having a, a more open Bluetooth stack that is qualified and things like that has been a, a really challenging thing. And I was really happy when I saw Dervio working on the NRF soft device, which wraps the existing uh, Nordic soft device so that you can you can use like a qualified Bluetooth stack from Rust fairly conveniently. So I'm that's one of the things that I definitely want to play around with on on my vacation of having kind of Rust and Bluetooth or even just playing around with Rubble a little bit more if it's because I know it doesn't cover everything. But if I only need a couple simple things, I may that may be good enough for me for what I'm looking to build. And then I'm in a totally Rust world, but I would never be able to ship that as a product because it's not a certified Bluetooth stack or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's true. Having it purely Rust would, would be very, very nice because yeah, you can just cargo, add it, and then, yeah. then you, you just got it. That's that's been so refreshing for from like the Rust embedded uh, community. Yeah, and, you, and you, Wi-Fi you, I know has always been a challenge. I think the easiest answer usually now is to just take an ESP eighty two sixty six or a thirty two and use it as an external SPI or UART modem, basically. Um, yeah. Because there's a bunch of drivers like embedded now and stuff like that that are looking at abstracting over those, whether you're using like an external Ethernet controller chip or like a UART or SPI based modem or things like that. But there just hasn't like Wi Fi stacks tend to be one of those proprietary blobs that just none of the vendors provide. Like they'll provide you a support library in C, which will talk to either the binary blob or over a like a serial interface. But it's not like they provide you the code for doing Wi-Fi stuff, which means it's very difficult to either reverse engineer or uh, re-implement it in Rust, which is a huge pain in the butt, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I haven't had to deal with that myself, luckily. Uh, my, my work project has been, uh, I could build everything uh, from the ground up, luckily. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was was also pretty funny. When, uh, 
I've been working there for a little over a year and this was my first project. And I was saying to the team, like, oh, I, I wish I could use something like Rust or something. And um, because uh, there is no other embedded development there yet, at least. Uh, everything is more like enterprise C-sharp, so I'm really the, the odd one out. But then they said, well, use Rust then if you, if you want. You're the only one writing it. We, you might as well use what you like. Yeah, yeah, because uh, otherwise it would have been C or C++ and nobody else is writing that either. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky uh, I, I, got, I got to do that. Have you had anyone else at your work starting to take up? So if they're coming from like a C-sharp background, have they looked at picking up Rust for either like command line tooling or other stuff? Or have you started to introduce them to it? Or is it just totally a, hey, that's your problem and we'll do our C-sharp stuff over here? Uh, so far, it's still mine, but there will there will come a point where uh, our two worlds need to uh, integrate with, with each other. Maybe something just as simple as a message bus like like rabbit mq or something but still then they, they, they will need to touch it at, at some point so i i i hope it will spark something <laughs> i hope <laughs> because, it sparks joy yeah yeah i i, I think it will uh, i i tweeted uh, yesterday uh, that that i'm i'm actually scared to to touch much C-sharp code right now because Rust has taught me a lot about multi-threaded stuff. Uh, for, for example, um, I, I had to do something and it was multi-threaded and I, I needed to, to have a shared integer. And in Rust, you, you'd use a, an atomic U32 or something. And then everything you do is atomic on it. But in C-sharp, you just have an int somewhere and you just need to remember everywhere you use it that you use atomic operations. And that's like like in, in the past, before I knew Rust, I thought, well, that's, that's fine, right? But now I think that that's like, <laughs> like for lunatics, only lunatics do that. <laughs> <laughs> Having to think about it yeah. every time. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought, so like I started my career doing safety critical stuff. So whenever I was writing C, I felt like I was really slow because like working in safety critical, like you always have to, like in your brain, you think of, like you've been taught all the things that can go wrong, or at least like from working on your team. So like, I always felt that I was really slow writing C because I would just sit there and I'd be like, okay, is this going to be fine? What happens if this happens? What happens if, am I checking this? Is this going on? So I always felt like I wrote C sort of slowly. And so like, I was always sort of scared whenever I was writing C because I'm always like, okay, does it do this? Is this going to be correct? How is this going to go? And then I started working with Rust and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, like the compiler checks all that stuff. And now when I go back to C, I'm even slower because now I'm checking, like my mental checklist is like all of the things that safety critical checklist would be and all of the stuff the Rust checklist is. So like whenever I have to, for a customer, like dive in and write C code or like do some FFI or do some, I'm always like sitting there for like a day and I'm like, how could this go wrong? Like what? Like I, I've become like paralyzed in, in writing C because... I'm trying, I'm in manual mode and my brain can't handle it. Like, so I, I definitely still have to drop into that occasionally. And it's not so bad when I'm just reading the code. Although occasionally when I'm just reading the code, I'm like, that's wrong. This could be wrong. I really hope no one's handling it like this because if they're handling it like this, then it's wrong. Like, and like you said, just not having, like when I'm writing Rust, I'm like, eh, compiler's got me. Like whenever I'm in safe mode, whatever, like compiler's gonna yeah. let me know if I did anything wrong. And then when I go back to unsafe, I start freaking out a little bit like whenever I'm working with BBQ, which is a data structure library. So it has a lot of like internal unsafe that it 
that it uses to get things right. I'm always like, all right, have I tested this with a sanitizer? Have I tested this with Miri? Have I tested this? Do I have all my warnings turned on? Like, I'm always a little bit more nervous, but usually I don't actually drop it. Like, other than BBQ or some embedded stuff, it's very rare that I drop into any unsafe code. Although I'm going to write a bootloader, which is going to be all unsafe code again. So I guess I keep flirting with unsafe code. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've written a bootloader for, for work and it doesn't have to be that much unsafe, uh, at least with, with the, the flash controller on the uh, STM32H7. All I needed unsafe for was getting a, uh, a slice to the flash memory that I wanted to write to. Uh, no, no, that's not even true. Don't really need that, but, but I did it anyway. And then actually writing the, the data to the flash, that's unsafe. And then jumping from the bootloader to the application, that's also mm. unsafe because I did that in assembly. Yeah. So that's two things where you really need unsafe. I like that there's an actual PR open right now for Cortex-M that adds a like bootload function. I think it's in assembly still, but it's it's literally like the update your stack pointer and jump to this address because like that's yeah. one of those things that's really challenging to do in in Rust because you or any high level language because like the optimizer is going to have opinions about it. But like it's one of those things that it makes sense to do in assembly because you're like no really I need exactly these two instructions in this order with no reordering and exactly like this because you have to like not corrupt your stack pointer and stuff like that. So I think I may either use the pre-release version of that or, or just copy and paste it into my own assembly. But I yeah, think... the, the, the oh, main worry I, I had with, with those two instructions, which are the only assembly th that I have, uh, is that you, you need to move your stack pointer and then you need to jump to an address. But where's your address? It's stored on, on your stack. Yeah. So you need to make sure that that's not on your stack, but in, in a register. And the only thing I th I thought that was possible to guarantee that it, that it's in a register was by writing it in assembly. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I've written some fake bootloaders. So I mean, one of the things that I've done. So you mentioned you're on the STMF4, which has the really nice uh, DFU bootloader like burned into the hardware. So like whenever I've been using the STMF4 over USB, I just use that because it it works. But I have this really hacky chunk of code that I keep copying and pasting between projects, which is I have a panic implementation that whenever you panic, it jumps to DFU bootloader mode. So basically, if you ever panic, it just says, okay, please upload a new firmware to me because <laughs> that was really useful while rapid prototyping because like I would just you know work on it. And if it crashed, I went, oh, that must have been wrong. So then I would go change the code and then flash the bootloader again. And on the F0, it seemed to work pretty reliably on the f4 i don't know why i could never figure out and i probably should just look at the assembly and like you said i'd probably figure out that sometimes it was doing the wrong thing but like sometimes it would just hang or sometimes it wouldn't it would act really funny until i power cycled it again i i wonder if i was just like corrupting my stack somewhere because the optimizer was running off and doing something but yeah i, I had that one little hacky piece of code and on the f0 like i said it worked really well but on the f4 after like three or four times, it would start acting funny. So I would have to like power cycle it and then it would start acting fine for a little while. But yeah, I think having that either that the function that has external assembly that does that for me will be really good. Or yeah, I should really just sit down and write my own like five lines of assembly that do 
exactly that detection. But yeah, I think I'm going to do a really basic bootloader that's just like two images and, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll save that for... I need to write down my thoughts before I, because otherwise I'm just going to give you like unassorted brain mush for my head. But I definitely need to write down. I think it's essentially going to boil down to like a sort of like half of what MCU boot, uh, you know how that works. But I was chatting with Derbio in the chat and basically like figured out the minimal, like what's the easiest thing to implement and the easiest thing to abstract over. So hopefully like the bootloader itself can be easily ported to a bunch of different ships because you just need to give it basically like a, how do I read flash and how do I write flash? And then like, here are the associated constants that are like, where does the bootloader begin? Where does the first page start? And where does the second page start? Or not page, but like section. If you have two images, like where does the first section start? Where does the second section start? And then what is the size of the flash page that I need to do operations on or something like that? So hopefully I can make it relatively abstractable. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've also got flash words, by the way. So yeah. on, the, on the H7, one flash word is 128 bits. Yep. Uh, now. Yeah. 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 I, I was thinking. I was thinking about that for, because those are, but those are generally optimizations. Like you can always like erase a whole page and then write a whole page, but it might be hugely wasteful because you might be wasting cycles or wasting things like that. But I think at least to start with, I might just be wasteful. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, bootloaders. It, it also really depends on how you want to deal with uh, things going wrong. Yeah. Uh, because if, if you need a fully recoverable bootloader, like like this device cannot ever fail, but it needs to be upgradable, that's a lot tougher problem. Yeah, right to the flash. I hope it will be okay. <laughs> I think I'm going to kick a little bit in that. Um, so I will, I'll give you the, like, the rough idea of how it works. So the idea would, you, would be that you have a bootloader at like the reset vector. And then you have a page A and a page B. The bootloader, essentially, I'll probably in the first revision make it so you just can't update the bootloader. So or like it requires a JTAG adapter to update the bootloader. Like just for simplicity, I'll probably make it so you can't update the bootloader. The second one will be the bootloader will when you give it a new image, it will. I actually I'm thinking about making it so that you you write to. OK, so when you when you want to do a firmware update, what you do is you write to the the first thing you do is you copy the A image, which is the active image to B. So like before you even start doing a firmware update, you co you copy the existing good image from the A side to the B side as essentially the backup side. And then you make sure that they like match and then you do that. Then you uh, like I said, I, I won't explain it in, in here because I haven't <laughs> written down all of my thoughts and it'd be easier on a piece of paper. But essentially uh -huh. what MCU boot does, of it has like an active and a backup position. And then you're you flash to the active partition. So the bootloader would rewrite the active partition, try boot booting to it. If it works, great. If not, it will fall back and copy the B image back to the A section so that it like it restores the existing one and then it will just resume from there. So it, it has some way of fallback or if you cut power cycle during any of that stage because it was copying to B. So if you reboot during that, it goes, okay, I didn't finish copying to B. So just reboot into the existing A image. If you put a bad image in A, it will try booting from that. If it detects that something went wrong, it will go, nope. And then when the bootloader comes back around, it will copy from B back to A. And if you reboot during that, it will just wake up and say, oh, okay, just start over copying B to A until I succeed from that. And then once you successfully have copied back to A, then you can boot into A. 
So that's the idea of it being vaguely safe is that, but there are a couple things that it like won't be able to recover from. Like if you write a totally bad image to A and B somehow, like some long delay fault where it only crashes after 30 seconds or something like that, no. then that might still be a problem. Or if you need to update the bootloader, yeah, you'll have to go take a JTAG adapter to it. But for me, that's like 90% of the reliability at 10% of the effort of not having a totally like redundant fallback page and tracking variables and things like that. Yeah, so, so the way I've, I've done it is over uh, Ethernet, the uh, firmware is, is being sent in, in just many, many packages. It writes that into the, the, the B slot. Then when the uh, firmware has been uploaded, the server will say, uh, hey, I want you to update now. This is the checksum of the firmware that you need to update. So it then first checks the, the B side, uh, calculates the checksum. If they are the same, great. It will then write a flag in the EEP ROM it has, like, hey, uh, an update needs to happen from B to A. Uh, then it reboots. The, the bootloader reads the EEP ROM, uh, sees like, uh, oh, hey, I, I need to update. So it copies from B to A, then it runs through it to check, uh, like, is everything really the same? And if it is, it turns off the flag and jumps to the program. I, I, th I think that also works pretty well. You don't have a backup if something goes wrong, but as long as you upload a good <laughs> firmware file, uh, it should work. Yeah. Now. Interesting. Yeah, that's one of those things where I wish we had position-independent code or position-independent execution in Rust, because I, I know there's some problems with the compiler right now working with that, because then you'd be able to like run from the A side or the B side. So this kind of like copying between pages is mostly a workaround that we can't compile in a position independent way, which means you always have, you'd either have to compile an A image and a B image, which were both correct and flash the right one when it was requested, or you always have to move to the A slot because it can really only execute from the A slot because that's the only one that has correct register offsets and things like that. Yeah. yeah well, the, the H7 I'm using, uh, you don't have to do that because um, the, the A side and the B sides are in separate banks. And you can ah, bank switch them. Gotcha. Uh, I'm not. I'm not using that, but that that could be an optimization for later. Yeah, that'd be cool. I, I don't think the NR52 supports that, but yeah, I definitely know some of the bigger Cortex M like seven chips support that, or the bigger M4 sometimes. Or I know, like in general, the STM parts tend to have a much more remappable memory space that you can do. And I think the NXP parts do as well. But yeah, I don't think Nordic has that. So I probably yeah, won't yeah. rely on it because Nordic is probably my first target on this. So yeah, yeah. If you, if you want it to be generic, then you shouldn't depend on those features. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I think we're getting towards the end of our half hour. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything you're working on or anything you definitely want people to go look at or see or anything you want to plug before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, well, we, we talked about it in, in the beginning, uh, the device driver crate. I, I want uh, people to look at it, give me feedback because I, I don't think it's, well, it, it works, but I, I think it could be better with, with, with more feedback uh, if I know what, what, what people really want from it. Mm. And uh, so, so if people can look at it, try it out, see uh, what's what's missing, maybe. So, what's the name of the crate, that, real quick? De uh, device driver, device dash 
Drivar. Okay. It's just on Crates.io. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was super good to talk to you again, and I'm looking forward to talking again soon. No problem. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.